the expression from the music inspired me so much to take risks and it inspired damn near the whole rap game. Hello again, I'm Adam Unz. You may know me as the host of The Opus, and now I'm bringing my own show, The Spark Parade, to the Consequence Podcast Network. I speak with artists and creatives about the cultural artifacts that spark their personal interest and creativity, whether it's music, books, movies, video games, or any other kind of art. I've never spoke about it in this amount of detail. I'm suddenly going, oh my God, I'm blowing my own mind here, Christ. It's, it's actually a giant part of my life. By talking about the things we love, we share and discover insights into our personality and the things that drive us. It's just magic, really. I mean, frustrating and it makes some people angry, but I don't think anyone's ever done anything like it. I speak with people like Connor Robers, Phoenix's Thomas Mars, Chris Gethard, Helen Hong, Adrian Young, and more, so their sparks of inspiration can start a fire in you. I'm grateful for those who continue to put our history and who we are as a people in the forefront and make you see it. Find the Spark Parade wherever you get your podcasts. Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores, led by Walmart and Target are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall credit card bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall credit card bill. Comedian Turner Sparks likes Ska so much, he decided to name his upcoming comedy special Double Happiness after the Slow Gherkin album of the same name. Turner grew up in Sacramento, California, and would frequent Ska shows at local venues. Some of his favorite groups were RX Bandits, Les Distics, and Link 80. Turner became a comedian years later after moving to China, which is a long story. He also hosts the Lost in America podcast, where he interviews comedians in other countries about what's happening socially and politically over there. His comedy special, Double Happiness, releases on Gitter Done Records on September 30th. You can pre-order it on iTunes right now, or get a signed copy directly from Turner at turnersparks.com. All right, Aaron, why did you want to have Turner Sparks on? I wanted to have Turner Sparks on because he likes my book Uh and listens to our podcast. Uh Uh-huh. And also is a great stand-up comedian. And? and oh, yes. And he's a huge Adam Davis fan. <laughs> <laughs> Turner used to come see Link 80 play at Capital Garage and other spots in Sacramento. The show that really sticks out to me at, at Capital Garage, we played like a matinee show. And there was some really young kid there who uh, was crowd surfing and they got their eyebrow split open. Ooh. And so like, you know, we, somebody patched him up with the first aid kit out front and I think all the bands gave him shirts and stuff. And so he was stoked. He wasn't really hurt. And his mom came to get him and, uh, he was all stoked and he was showing his mom all the stuff that he'd gotten for free from all the bands, uh, to like show sympathy. And she turned the promo- to the promoter and was like, well, what do I get? <laughs> <laughs> I like to imagine that that kid was Turner. I know it wasn't, but yeah, it would probably was though. It probably was. You saw Link 80 back in the day when, when Adam was in the band? Yes. Uh, I, I was scared of your band. <laughs> <laughs> Why were you scared? Well, no, I, I liked him. I, I was a fan of the music, but I, I think like everyone I knew was kind of, you guys were this intimidating crew. And I don't think personally, I just, and not even you guys, it was the crowd. 
I, I remember I was going to the show. It must have been in the winter. I grew up in Sacramento. It was at um, a cafe. What's that cafe downtown? Capital Garage, maybe. And uh, I don't know if that name rings a bell to you. But um, I, this is hilarious. I was getting out of the car and it was in the winter. So I had like a long sleeve t-shirt on and my uncle sold copiers. And so it was sharp, like sharp. Remember that brand of copiers? Like sharp. So it said on my t-shirt and I got out of the car and my friend was like, he was in another car and he's like, dude, so you can, what are you doing with that shirt? And I'm like, I, it's, I don't know. What are you talking about? He's like, there's going to be, you know, that's like the name of a, a skinhead group that just goes out and tries to fight people. And I'm like, no, I didn't know that. And he's like, yeah, you might want to flip it inside out or change shirts or something. He's like, they're anti-racist, but they just fight. All they do is fight. <laughs> <laughs> and they might think you're trying to make fun of them by wearing the shirt. And I was like, oh, man. So I think I flipped my shirt inside out to go watch you guys. Wait, did you have a shaved head? No, I was just some kid. It would have been fine. I know. In hindsight, <laughs> I would have totally been fine. But uh, that was it was just like we also you're from the Bay Area. We, I was in I was in a uh, band in Sacramento, a ska band. And there was this sense of seriousness. It was like we were just all screwing around. Uh, I mean, we were serious about what we were doing, but there was a sense of like, oh, like real audience members are going to be at this show. So you just got to be like on your toes a little bit. What was your band called? We were called Fat Kids on Mopeds. Nice. Yeah, it was fun. We we played all the time with Les Distics, who you might know. Sure. We did a split seven inch with them. Yes. Yeah. So uh, I'm good friends with, with like Dennis, who uh, was the trombone player who took over mm -hmm. for uh, uh, Steve, I guess who joined your band, right? Mm -hmm. And um, we played with them. And then there was like five ska bands in Sacramento, including, well, no, there was five ska bands that, and so we just did all the shows, like literally every show we did was the exact same bands on the bill, except for then every once in a while, there'd just be some uh, kind of like a, like Papa Roach ripoff band thrown in the middle. And everyone would like, that's when people would like, go get a drink, you know? <laughs> Well, name the bands. Let's hear the band names. The ska bands were, yeah. they were, they were all good, by the way. Everybody was good. There was Les Distics always headlined. And then sometimes Sucker Punch would come down from Reno. Mm -hmm. And, um, and then there was a band called, oh, then Dennis's band was Three Foot Wookie. And yep. then there was Godot, this other band from near us, like waiting for Godot to play. And then there was us. And then we were like 15 years old and they were all like maybe early 20s. We were 14, 15, 16, something like that. So we were always the opener and then we just got to hang out. And then there was two other bands in the area, but they never would play with us, which was uh, 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 Punch the Clown from Davis yep. and, um, and Filibuster, who was just like, they were yeah. just awesome. They were kind of gone by the time we were like, they were already touring and they seemed much bigger and far away. But they were great. Oh yeah, Phil filibuster was a couple years older. So yes, yeah, they had already put out a few out. They were just like established. It seemed like, and yeah, and then there was one other band. I, I forget the other band's name, but it was more like a sublime thing. Like there was no horns, but they had a DJ. You know what I mean? <laughs> Do you remember the name of any of the uh, Papa Roach sounding bands? Oh uh, yeah. <laughs> There was way too many of them, first of all. <laughs> and they all got signed to major record labels. I remember just be like kids at my high school. They'd be like, oh, they just got a million dollars from like Electra Records. And you're like, what? They have two songs. I've seen them at the Battle of the Bands, you know? Uh, 
there was a band called Leisure um, Awful. Uh, yeah. <laughs> a band called Simon Says. And mm-hmm. They played at our lunch at high school like every two weeks. And all of a sudden, like Madonna gave them $3 million because they kind of sounded like Papa Roach, I think. Uh, the real issue was that um, who was the ones that were really good? Like the, do you know what I'm talking about? The, originally was on Madonna's record label from Sacramento. You about Deftones? Deftones. Yeah. I bl- they're great, but I do blame them because then there was a hundred bands who tried to sound like them. And then when Papa Roach hit, I think the industry just decided like, like, you know how like all it took, it was like Nirvana and, and Pearl Jam. And then everyone's like, Seattle, that's everything now. Like they just, there was like a brief three months where the record labels were like, wait, Deftones and Papa Roach are from the same place. Then they must all be good. And so then like, yeah, that happened. I don't know if, did you guys overlap? Did either one of your bands over? play with all those oh yeah link 80 played the papa roach cd release show for the big album with last resort on. oh really yeah how yeah i by the way i I was visiting my parents in sacramento the other day and i saw that guy at the roseville galleria (laughs) (laughs) hilarious and he still he was like he was like a dad he was like with his kids and they were annoying him and he was shopping at i don't know it wasn't i don't know if it's like Foot Locker or something but he had the same hair and I was like, oh man, look, we all end up in the same place, you know? <laughs> yeah. There's no escaping it. Do you remember a band called Shorty? Yeah, I do remember Shorty. I saw I saw their first show ever. And uh okay. the vocalist hat was like singing through an effects pedal. Yes. I just remember like you know how like if you're playing guitar, you'll hit an effects pedal and maybe you'll miss and then you'll have to hit it again. Yeah. That happened to him while singing and like looking down at the pedal. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> It was and it was like middle of the day, like it was an outdoor show. Oh my god, we did so many outdoor, just in a sweating in a parking lot. Yeah, they would call it like a skate. Like three kids would be skateboarding, and they're like, "It's a skate competition or something." I'm not sure. Yeah, but we did a lot of those. The Decepticons. Did you ever see them? Oh, a lot of times. They were they like hardcore. Yeah, super hardcore. I they were very. They also scared me. <laughs> I saw the Decepticons a lot. And then, what was the other one? Um, Six Cylinder. I don't know if they ever made it out of the hills. Mm-hmm. But they were up in like the foothills. But yeah, Decepticons, Ever, I think we might have been on a bill with them at some point. Because they would overlap at that point. Ska bands and then just and punk. And then it would bleed into hardcore a little bit. Yeah. But I would imagine you guys much more. I mean, the bands we played with the most in Sacramento were Less Distics. Uh, Decepticons and Lucky Strike. Like we played with those bands kind of just on a constant rotation. Yeah, that makes sense. I, Lucky Strike was, I saw them early before you were in the band. I only knew you were in the band because of this podcast, because I listened to this podcast. <laughs> yeah. And I was like, wait, what? But it must have, I think I saw them before that. Mm. Uh, they were really good. I only played like six shows with them. So nobody saw me playing that band. I also want to say just for the record, by the and I don't this doesn't have to be an hour of us just like shitting on Sacramento <laughs> bands. <laughs> no, I I loved Sacramento. I mean, I moved to Sacramento for a brief period of time because I thought all the bands were great. And literally as soon as I moved there, yeah, they all broke up. <laughs> when did you move there? Uh it would have been like 2000, 2001. Like I was I was there for two, for 9/11. Oh man. Yeah, that guess what? That's when we broke up too. Oh, see? I moved there. Everybody broke up. Yeah, we, I let we all went to college. That was 2000. We all graduated high school, and then it was just kind of the end of it for us. Yeah. Um, 
And uh, wow, I didn't. So that must have been the end of the, the end of the thing for SAG. I didn't realize, but they were. It was I, I thought it was a really good scene growing up. But and then I I moved. I went to Miami for college, and I okay. remember being like shocked that Miami just didn't have. I assume like, oh, it's a bigger city. There'll be a bigger, better punk and ska scene here, and it was like not even close. Yeah, it was terrible. I remember I was there for only a couple weeks and I met some other kids who one of them had like, you know, like a bouncing souls patch or something. And I'm like, Oh, let's be friends. And, and then he was like, Oh, there's uh, he was from Miami. And he's like, I'm going to, let's go. We're going to go see like the best Miami ska band. I'm like, this is going to be awesome. And then we went and they're in your uh, book, Aaron. I, should I mention them or not? I know I've talked to you off air about them. Let's no, no, let's hear. Okay. They were called blinking underdogs. <laughs> and that was like a, I would say calling him an underdog was like an overstatement. It was the worst thing I'd ever seen. <laughs> it was way worse than the worst band in Sacramento. And they were the best band in Miami. Oof. And I was like, what, what happened? I, I guess I didn't know that I was growing up in a good scene. This is my point. The weird thing too, is that Florida has a lot of good scenes and good bands. Like when we toured through Florida, we would play really incredible shows and play with really great bands and I thought the same thing too, like headed door down towards Miami. I was like, okay, Miami's the big city. Mm-hmm. This show's going to go off. Like all these other shows have been amazing. And it was like the worst show of the tour. Yeah. It's a terrible live entertainment town. Yeah. Live music, live anything. But the, but then uh, I also learned in Aaron's book that the guy, the blinking underdogs guy, isn't he in like Star Wars or something? Yeah. You're talking about Oscar Isaac. Yeah. His band stunk. they were also just rock with horn like they were doing that whole rock with horns thing which was oh yeah that was my least favorite i didn't really like that genre that much uh but anyway back to link 80 you guys were fantastic it was it was you guys were i would have sworn that i also didn't know much about like life and i was young and and uh I would have sworn that you guys were all making hundreds of thousands of dollars a year (laughs) (laughs) playing in your band. I just thought if you had an album and then also if you had it on Asian man records, to me, that was like, Oh, you made it. You guys just, you're just count down the days to retirement at that point. (laughs) You know? Yeah. That was the brokest I've ever been in my whole life. (laughs) Really? (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. So poor. It was like being homeless basically. Yeah. And we were like nine levels below that. (laughs) Adam's kind of talked about this before too, that there was like kind of a tough, intimidating uh, thing about Link 80 as a group. So you kind of picked up on the fact that they were maybe them or their audience was a bit like kind of intimidating. I would say more the audience. Uh, Yeah, because I never met you guys. So I would go to shows. It was hard to tell. You know, I mean, like the music is awesome fantastic the horn like the whole thing was great and it just there was this idea that like you know if you went to see hepcat you're just hanging out and if you went to see link 80 or or decepticons maybe it was like that whole combo it was like you just had to be especially just like because you'd be watching link 80 you're like this is awesome great and then decepticons would come on and all of a sudden a guy would like start doing karate in the middle of the mosh pit (laughs) and you're like whoa he's like swinging for my head what are we doing you know uh, so there was just that sense a little bit. You had, just had to be aware of your surroundings, I guess is the best way to put it. Yeah. The, the funny thing with us though, is that, you know, since we had the ska into like the hardcore breakdowns, we'd have the kid who'd be skanking 
Yeah. And then we'd hit the breakdown and they'd go straight from skanking into like the like windmills and like jump kicks. <laughs> yeah, that's what I'm talking about. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> that's hilarious. It was really good though. I felt like you guys, and I don't know what your opinion was, but to me, Link 80 was, I mean, I never saw you live early, earlier. So what I saw mm-hmm. live was, I guess, the last incarnation of Link 80, but I thought it was like a, you guys were at your peak. It, personally i mean yeah i feel like musically i mean when nick was in the band the focus was really on nick like he had like all the like elements of like an amazing front person yeah and the band was doing fine too but like i don't feel like the band was as engaged as nick was like he was really going for it and then when nick passed away and we shuffled things around i feel like everybody kind of went a little bit more all in and also just the amount of touring that we did, like everybody was playing their instruments so much on such a regular basis that everybody just got better. That was the big difference between like our local shows and then seeing you guys was how tight everything was. Yeah. Like the songs were just t- everything like the it's, it's not easy to take was it five or six instruments. Yes. Yeah. And then have them all like hit everything at the exact same time. And if you want evidence of that, you could listen to my band. so that capital garage show was that a matinee was that a daytime show or was that a nighttime show no it was at night and the only reason i'm thinking it must have been winter is because i had a long sleeve shirt on i remember having that that long sleeve shirt on right but yeah it was really good and uh i also i don't know did you guys ever see ladybird the movie oh yeah yes the movie Mm -hmm. i'm almost positive when you know she works at that coffee shop I'm almost positive they're depicting Capitol Garage. Really? It's right in that area, right near this other uh, high school. So she's one year younger than me, the uh, Gerwig, Greta Gerwig. She went to uh-huh. the girls' school. I went to the boys' school. I went to that school that's like depicted as the boys' school, the high school in the movie. And it's there's a, and if you notice throughout the whole, every time like the high school kids are hanging out at a party, there's ska music going on. Have you noticed that? I completely missed that. Either in their car or they're at like they're oh. drinking and someone's parents are away. It's literally always ska music, which was my, it's my exact. It's like someone made a big budget movie of my high, like home movie of my <laughs> high school. It's nuts. Down to the kids are all wearing khakis. None of the kids wear jeans. It's at that time I didn't know a single kid who wore jeans. Oh hell no! Everybody wore dickies. Yeah, dickies or something like that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And and she makes that's in the movie. And then uh. There's this Mexican restaurant where she goes to after they graduate, which was the place everybody went after they graduated. And then she works at this coffee shop that has bands play at night. And that was the only place at that time that was doing that. And I'm like, that's, I can tell she's talking about Capitol Garage. What was the biggest show you ever saw at Capitol Garage? Probably that. uh, Or maybe, I don't, you know, um, Seven Seconds or one of Kevin Seconds bands used to play. He was living in downtown Sacramento, so they were around all the time. He had the True Love coffee shop. That's that's could be the other place she's depicting in the in the thing, but I think it it feels more Capital Garage ish. But yeah, I saw. Do you remember a band called The Faint? I do not. I remember that. They were like a kind of like electro band, but like right when they were getting huge, they played at Capital Garage, and the venue was way too small for them, and it was like completely oversold. Oh yeah, and so like every place that you could stand in that club was filled with people and then they had their own light show oh wow and so they went around the club and they were like we have to turn off all the lights so for our light show and so there was even like they had the you know the um cooler with the like 
Coca-Cola branding on it. And it had the like, they had to open it up, take the like faceplate off of it and unscrew the light bulb to turn it off. That's nuts. And then they could, and then they could start their show. That's and the people are probably like, we're just trying to sell mochas. Can you guys? Yeah. <laughs> we're exactly. a coffee shop. I remember they'd always be trying to sell coffee while kids are like windmilling. And stuff. <laughs> <laughs> it was the funniest place to see a show. But no, most yeah. of the shows I saw were. I mean, this is we can run through it quick because most people probably won't know. But Bojangles, uh, mm-hmm. and then there was a place called El Dorado Saloon that was hosting shows for a little bit in Carmichael. And then it bounced around like they'd have nine months. This place would be like for nine months, they'd be the ska punk place. And then they'd get pissed off for some reason and be like, no more of these. And then we'd have to find a new place. Big shots was the one that I remember in Roseville. Yeah, we played big shots. I remember playing there. Um, and then for the bigger bands, it was the, uh, the theater, the crest. Yeah. Crest theater. And then there was also a boardwalk in Orangevale, which I think is still there. Who did you see at crest? I have a wild one. So the first ska show I think I ever saw, maybe not, but it was Real Big Fish at Crest. Opening wow. for them was uh, the Aquabats. Mm. And Dang. it was the Aquabats with Travis Barker. And I was a drummer. And I remember, wa- like, I had never heard of the Aquabats. They come on stage. I was like, this is crazy. It's like dudes in scuba gear playing ska music (laughs) and then i immediately was like why does this scuba gear ska band have the best drummer i've ever seen in my life and they're opening like who is this band (laughs) and then i think and then they were they blew it away like they real big fish was really good live but they really blew them away and then i bought all their stuff and became a fan and then i want to say like i don't know a year later to i don't know how long later but he joined uh blink 182 and he was like off to the races but I remember just him being bizarrely better than anyone on stage at, at his, at his instrument, like wildly better. And it was, this was a crazy, this is like a depiction of the ska scene in the nineties. I saw real big fish at uh, the crest theater, which seats like, I don't know, 1500, maybe 2000 people, something like that. And then a year later, maybe they play. I didn't go, but they played Arco Arena, which is where the Sacramento Kings played. It seemed like 17,000 people. And then six months after that, they played a nightclub that stood like 125 people. Wow. It was, and that was like the up, down, like grow, 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 fall off a cliff of yeah. that they were, they were at the, and I went to the, the first one and the last one and they were great. They were great. Every time I saw them, but I was, I remember being confused. I was like, why are they playing this tiny venue in, I don't know where it was, Cameron park close to where I live or something. But um, yeah, it was nuts. And I didn't know, I mean, this is skipping like way ahead, but I didn't know ska had really, I remember when your book, your book came out or when your book was about to came, come out, I started talking to my brother. We had both, left the United States. I left in 2004 and came back in 2016 and he did about the same thing. And we both grew up going to ska shows and he was like a huge Skankum Pickle fan. He got me into them. And we didn't technically know that ska had gone away. You're like, why did the books like, you know, like ska, whatever, ska's not dead or ska is dead, but it's back now. It's like, you know, and we were like, wait, what happened? Like we missed the whole thing. <laughs> and then I came back in 2016 and I moved to New York City and I went to see, I remember the pie tasters were playing and I was like, oh, awesome. I'm going to go see the pie tasters. Just assuming that the pie tasters were as big as they were in like 1999 when I had seen them before. 
And there was like, I don't know, maybe 75 people there and half of them were their family and me. And I was like, what? Did I just go into a time warp? Like, what happened? Why aren't they huge? What's going on? And then I read your book and I was like, oh my gosh, there's this whole middle part I missed out on. Yeah. So, yeah. But then I, but then I saw the slackers shortly after that and they were, and they, they can sell out anything in New York city and they're awesome. They play every year at Christmas. So they've kept, they've maintained their audience. And I think I would say even have grown it in the, in the sort of two thousands. I agree. They're really the best. And, and I love the pie tasters, but I got the impression they were kind of, it's kind of like the, I could be wrong. You guys might know better, but it got the feeling they like kind of get back together once or twice a year to do this thing for fun. Like that was the feel of it. I think they might be playing a little bit more now, but um, definitely in that, in that post nineties era, I think they did have an album out in like the early two thousands, but you know, then eventually there was a point where they were not active anymore. Yeah. So yeah, I was in China for most of the whole, I guess the fall. (laughs) (laughs) What took you to China? Uh, I was just going to, I graduated college. I was going to go for a year and teach English just to kind of see a different part of the world. Oh, nice. And yeah, I did that for a year. And then at the end of the year, um, decided to, uh, uh, my roommate from college in Miami, his grandfather had started this company on the East Coast called Mr. Softy Ice Cream Trucks. And it's like Dairy Queen on a truck. Like they play the music. Yeah. They have a song. There was a Kirby Enthusiasm episode about the Mr. Softy truck. There's an Eddie Murphy bit. Like, you ain't got no ice cream. I don't know if you remember that one, but um, that's about the Mr. Softy man. So after a year in China, I decided, he and I decided to open a, like buy a franchise from his dad and open a Mr. Softy truck in China and just see what would happen. <laughs> how, did, how did that go? It went bonkers. It was great. I ended up doing it for 10 years and built 10 trucks and t- opened two stores. And uh, I was like the... The Mr. Softy guy, the ice cream guy for the city I was living in, in China. So, yeah, it was quite the detour. Uh, it all kind of like came down, right? Before you came back? Yeah. So that was why I came back. So, um, well, halfway through that, I started doing stand-up comedy, which we get into later. But uh, it was, we were building and growing and growing and growing. And then, um, but we had to get a yearly permit from the government every year. There was no such thing as like, we were the first mobile vending truck in the country. There was no taco truck, you know, like there was no food trucks. We were the first one. So we had to kind of work with the, that's crazy. Yeah. So, so (laughs) I had to, all these meetings, I had to work with the local government to design the law that would regulate us which is a pretty good deal if you can get it (laughs) to be writing your own law to regulate yourself. Uh, It's not a bad way to go. So uh, they had no idea. They're like, so what we decided was that they said, well, you have to build a store and then we'll say that your truck is like a delivery truck for the store. Like it could fit under a law that already existed that way. So just how, so they would regulate a delivery truck. Uh, like a UPS truck or something. And so um, we did that and the, uh, the government was cool and we got along well and their kids loved ice cream. And so everything, and every once in a while you go and you hang out with, Hey, let's have dinner and here's some ice cream and <laughs> you schmooze. And, uh, and 
I did that and for, that was going great. And year after year after year after year. And then somewhere along the way, all the guys I had worked with retired and these new young guys came in and were like, hey, who's, how does that foreign guy have this permit to do all these ice cream trucks? And they were like, well, we give it to them. And, and then they're like, oh, well, why don't we just build trucks ourselves and then not give him the permits anymore? And they were like, that's a brilliant idea. <laughs> so, <laughs> so that's what happened. So they got like their, you know, like their dumb cousin. Every There's always like an idiot in the family. And you're like, listen, he's not going to, he's not meant for college. So, or he's not meant for the career world, but we can give him an ice cream truck. And if he could just go sit on that and get out of our way, then he'll, he'll end up there, you know? So all these government officials were building trucks that they didn't need permits for because they were the government and then giving them to their cousins or brothers or nephews or uncles and then parking them bumper to bumper with, with our trucks. And, uh, cause we already knew where all the good spots were in town. So they just parked next to ours and took the good, basically just took our routes and then eventually, uh, just pulled our permits away. So once they were all up and running, pulled our permits and made us illegal. So we wouldn't compete with them. So, Jeez. Yeah, so I was like, I think it's about probably about time to head out. <laughs> so that was 2016, though. That's all it took over the course of 12 years. Did that? Wow. So wait, the the Mr. Softy trucks in China do they have the same um, theme song? Yeah, but na 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 Yeah, yeah. So we took the. It was Mr. Softy. Like, so we got the franchise, and we took the exact music box from America and put them in our trucks in China. Um, I found this factory that was, that was building kind of like re outfitting trucks in China. They were doing it a lot for like you, like they take a shell and then turn it into an ambulance or uh, uh, like a radio tower type of thing, like an FBI thing or sometimes a tank. And uh, I got them, I, to re out, I gave them the specs and they re outfitted these shells and turned them into ice cream trucks. And they took me out there one day to go see the factory. And first we went out to lunch and these guys, like the, the, all these like government, there's a government company and these government guys, they love to just get hammered at like 1130 <laughs> in the morning on like moon, like Chinese moonshine. So we're drinking, I'm drinking with them. We're eating all this crazy food and we're blacked out drunk. And then they're like, all right, let's go back and see your trucks. But we go back to see my trucks, but they just let me into the back lot. And there's these, all these like super secret military vehicles that I should not be allowed to see. But we're all wasted. They're like, hey, do you want to get on one of these tanks? Get in a tank. <laughs> Go see the tank. And so I was like, all of a sudden got a private tour of all these like Chinese military, <laughs> I, military secrets that uh, if I was if I was in any way sober, I could have, you know, funneled them back to someone in America. But uh, it was a wild <laughs> life. So uh, Keith Lowell Jensen, uh, Sacramento comedian, you brought him to China um, to do comedy. I assume you knew him from back in the day in Sacramento? Uh, yeah, I knew him. Well, not really. I knew Keith uh, from stand-up. When I would come home and visit my parents, I would uh -huh. do stand-up in Sacramento. And he ran a show downtown at Luna Cafe in Sacramento. Oh, okay. And so I would just jump on his show and do seven minutes or ten minutes or something like that. And um, yeah, somewhere along the way, I started comedy out in China and I, the town I was living in, I started an open mic 
And uh, it also turned out there was no other. That was the first one of its, of its kind uh, in the country. And then I ended up starting a tour. I turned that into a tour where we'd have these American comedians come out and we'd do maybe six nights around the country and each night in a different city doing a comedy show for the Chinese people who spoke English and the, the foreign expats and everybody who lived there. We'd like do a Tuesday in a city called Nanjing and then a Wednesday in Hangzhou and then Thursday in Suzhou and Friday and Saturday night in Shanghai. And, um, and at our club, I ended up opening a comedy club as well in Shanghai. And uh, Keith came out and did that, that whole tour. Oh, yeah. So Keith is a, well, Keith's a good friend. Um, but he also was our first official guest on this podcast. I listened. I know. Actually, technically. So that's the only episode where we have, we had a clip of somebody else calling our guest annoying before <laughs> the episode. And that's <laughs> technically Johnny Taylor is our first guest. Cause we had that clip. Do you know, do you know, Johnny? Is- yeah. And I should also just say on the record, Keith is annoying. <laughs> he's a good friend of mine but it's it, <laughs> i spent a lot of times in cars with keith driving across california or different parts of china yeah yeah yeah. i know johnny johnny's great too i've kind of gotten to know the whole local I've, i didn't start my comedy career in sacramento but they've ingratiated those two guys have ingratiated me into the scene and people are really welcoming johnny's a good friend too and what's funny is um he introduced me uh, like a month ago to Melissa Villasenor because she likes ska. Oh, yeah. And so he was opening for her at Punchline. And uh, after the show, he invited her. He's like, oh, you want to meet her? And so I talked to her and, and you know, and she was, you know, she likes she loves Cat Bite. And she showed me some ska memes on her phone. Nice. And then I was like, because Johnny hates ska. He hates it. <laughs> and I was like, dude, why do all your comic friends love ska? I was like, Melissa, Keith. He's like. Brian Posehn too. I was like, really? He's like, oh yeah, he likes. <laughs> <What>? <laughs> he was just so like, it, it just ugh, he was so disgusted. What is he into? Like, he likes uh, he likes uh, hair metal. I was gonna say, I knew I was gonna guess death metal, but I knew it was one of them. He likes you know the Father John Misty and all the like kind of sad stuff too. But his his like you know genre of music that he likes like Hell or High Water, <laughs> Ride or Die, his Ride or Die music. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, Johnny taunts Keith about liking ska, and then Keith taunts Johnny about liking hair metal. That's their thing. Yeah. Well, when we were in the, I remember sitting in a cafe in the middle of China, and Keith and I realized that was the first time we realized that we had both kind of been in the Sacramento ska scene at the same time, and we knew like a, a bunch of the same people. And it's like, wait, what? Really? We know each? Holy crap! Yeah, that's so strange, isn't it? Really nuts. Yeah, I. I should have guessed by the way he dressed that uh, he always wears like a hat, like a bowler hat. And uh, yeah, I don't know if we can call it a bowler hat. What's what's the term? <laughs> what are those hats called? Oh, I don't know. It's not a fedora either. <laughs> it's a nice hat. It's a good hat. It's a good hat. I'm not saying it's a bad hat. No, I like. listen. I'm, I'm a ska person. I like ska. Yeah. But I think there's a connection between ska and comedy. I mean, it helped playing in a growing up in a ska band for sure helped me write later on with comedy writing music writing songs helped with writing jokes like definitely because there's a rhythm to comedy that exists that you might not necessarily know you're feeling but you're feeling if you're sitting in a comedy club watching a stand-up there's a hit and a hit and a hit and a hit 
and it starts to like, and then there's a pause and then a big hit. And whether I think having that background gives you this inherent ability or kind of like, you know, when you're hitting the right, you know, when a joke's working, when the, when the rhythm's on based off of just doing it, writing songs your whole life. And I, I don't, I, clearly it's not like required to have played in a ska band, but it doesn't hurt as you can tell. It's required. I think it's required. It's but I was required. just trying to be nice. <laughs> yeah. I was trying to be nice. So when did you start your band? That was um, like, how old were you? I think uh, 12 maybe or 13. Wow. And, but the first band was just, it was a, it was all the same people throughout the different iter- iter- iterations of the band. But we initially started out with a different name. I don't even remember what it was, but we were a, like trying to be Weezer pretty much mm. uh, 93, 94, somewhere in that range. And then uh, I think 95 switched. We all got into Scott at the same time, or maybe I got more into it than other people, but kind of pushed them into it. And we became a Scott. And then we started looking for horn players and became a Scott band and went through really 2000. And then, um, uh, to, and then we got back together after freshman year of college. We all came home and played for the summer in 2001. Uh, but yeah, it was kind of like the thing to do. I, there was a lot of bands. I remember like a, half the high school I went to being in bands. It felt like there was a ton of bands. And I don't think there was any other ska bands in our school, but it just felt like it was ska was very normal. You, I never remember having to explain to anybody like until I went to college in Miami. Growing up, I never had to explain to anybody like, what is ska? That was never, everyone just kind of knew. I think maybe because Warp Tour would come through Tahoe every year and everybody would go up there for 4th of July and it was exposing us. I remember the specials played at Warp Tour one of the years and it, you were just kind of exposed to it. It was just kind of, and it was on the radio at that point with the Boston's and Blink-20, I mean, not Blink-20, uh, Real Big Fish and Save Ferris. I don't, was that your experience growing up? Eddie, you guys are a few years older than me, but not a lot. Yeah, it's a little different. We got into Scott. Me in particular, I got into Scott from Skank and Pickle in like 92. Yeah. So it was like an underground music when I got into it. And then I kind of watched it go into being a mainstream genre, which was a, 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 a weird experience. I'm sure. Yeah. Yeah. And I and I don't know if ska didn't need to be um if people weren't asking what ska uh when we were growing up, mostly because they didn't want to look like they didn't know things. So they would just go, Oh, that's ska. Okay. <laughs> okay. Okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I remember particularly being in junior high. So I must have been like twelve or thirteen. And I was really into skank and pickle. And my brother had got me into him. And then there was this other kid um who was more like a tough kind of punk guy. And he was into, and he had like a uh, one like a um, a jacket. I wanted like a jean jacket, but with patches all over it. And he was really into Operation Ivy. And I remember he didn't know who Skanga Pickle was, and I didn't know who Operation Ivy was. And we kind of like inherently didn't really like each other. Uh, <laughs> I think he didn't like me. He thought I was like I was. He thought I was weak and a wimp. And uh, he just thought Scott was lame. And, um, and then one day it like, I like the same week, somebody gave him, must've given him a skank and pickle album. And somehow I discovered operation Ivy and we were both like, Oh wait, I like you. 
you like my band? I like that band. You like that band? And then we were friends. And then he ended up playing in my band for a while later on. Played yeah. bass. And we're still friends to this day. He plays in a, a band in LA called Cinezen, I think, which is like kind of like a Southern California sublime-ish type group. Guy Kevin Brown. But uh, yeah, I remember that. It was, it was also... Well, we were young, but it was also just new. And over the top of everything was grunge. In oh, the early '90s, yeah. early mid '90s, grunge, and then like alternative, quote unquote, alternative rock, like Weezer, and then like yes, the other bands. I to me, my memory of like grunge to like the Pearl Jam to Weezer, it seemed like really fast. Like I agreed, it, but you know, it's a long time ago. That's kind of how I remember. Like one minute, radio is dominated by Pearl Jam and Nirvana, then all of a sudden, it's dominated by Weezer. Um, not like so different musically. I mean, people might argue with me saying that. I just mean in the sense that it's just catchy rock music, you know, different flavors of it. I agree. It's all, um, well, who was the Frank, what was Frank Black's band? What were they called again? The Pixies. The Pixies? Yeah. I find those bands as all different like versions. They took different avenues. They listened to the Pixies and took it a different way. I, I don't know. That's person. I mean, that's, yeah. I'm sure that's very controversial to say, but that's how I feel. You can hear the Pixies in all of it. You know what? Um, Nate Albert, the guitarist for the Boston's, told me that Pixies were a big influence on him and his decision to go the ska verse punk chorus formula that they invented that sort of became the style for 90 ska bands. Wow. So you just you said more truth than you realized. Do you know what else? You're not the only person in this interview who's interviewed Nate Albert. Whoa! <laughs> I talked to him in Miami. I was writing for the school paper, and he had just left the Mighty Mighty Boston's to start whatever his next band was that sounded Pixies ish, actually. And uh, I remember going to see them and then hanging out with him and doing an interview with him. He was a good guy. Did you interview other ska bands? I saw like an interview with some ska musician that said from like the 2000s and it said Turner Sparks, and I was like, I assumed that wasn't you, but that must have been you. It must have been. I don't know. What, uh, yeah, I mean, I wrote for the... It was probably for my school paper. I don't know how... Did you just Google that? You Google my name and found it? I, I Googled your name, yeah. Wow. Yeah, that was probably me. I don't think there's... I don't know of any other Turner <laughs> Sparks. If, they, if, you, if you find them, I got to fight them. So. <laughs> yeah, and you have to cut off his head and absorb his power. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> so so your, um, your, your new album is called Double Happiness. So yes. You said it has four meanings. Um, one of them, obviously, is the name of the Slow Gherkin album. But what's the other three meanings? So double happiness is... My wife's Chinese, and double happiness is... the we, I met when we were living over there. And it's the characters, the Chinese characters that they hang on your door when, you're, when you get married. Uh, so it's like a wedding. It's like a wish for a marriage, like a beautiful marriage, double happiness. Like it's two people coming together, right? So it's an out this this new record, which is gonna it's, it'll be on YouTube. Uh, it might by the time you hear this, I, it might be out. Um, you could check, but it'll be on YouTube, and it'll, it's also come out. You can download it on um, iTunes and all that stuff. And if you want it signed, I can go to turnersparks.com. I can sign it and send it to you. Um, but it's uh, so this is an it's a show. It's a, an hour, whatever it is, about my marriage for the most part. Um, so that's one meaning. The second meaning is uh, it's my second it's my second record, 
It's the second thing I've done. So like, hey, it's a double. It's the number two. Hey, here, you get happy again. Listen to the new one, you know? And then the third meeting is that it's an hour or 45 minutes, whatever it is. It's an hour of me complaining. So it's just ironic, you know, it's tongue in cheek. Okay. Uh, that I'm, it's, it's happiness. But And then the fourth meeting is it's... They're the most important one. Yeah, it's a Slow Gherkin album. And... <laughs> I thought, why not rip off a Scavit? No. <laughs> I, I thought it was a cool idea. Just name it after that. And then maybe people, I don't know, like it's, it'll show up next to it in places when you search online. And then I kind of thought like, well, this, uh, I should name everything I do from now on all my future hours. I'm, I'm starting to work on the next one now about, I mean, I should name them after albums that were around when I was, when I was young. And punk bands, ska bands, whatever. I, is, that, is that? Here's my question to you: Is that a good? Am I ripping these bands off, or is that like an homage? It's supposed to be an homage, but I don't know how it would be taken. I think it's a good homage, like because you're not, because you're in a different format. I think it's cool, like you're yeah. a comedian using a, an album. Okay. If you were another band, maybe it would depend. Yeah, but I I like it. Where you're like crossing over a different art form. Okay, cool. Yeah, it's supposed to be like an Easter egg. Adam, what's your take? I'm. I mean, Aaron, Aaron and I, when we had our, we had a, we have a band called Narboots. The very first thing that we put out um, was called. Uh, we put out an EP called Maybe I'll Catch Fire. <laughs> <laughs> I totally forgot about that. <laughs> did you really? We did. Oh, I thought you were joking. No, no. Yeah. The first three songs we put out, we titled it, Maybe I'll Catch Fire. And then on the front of it, I put a, a picture of a, a drawing of a um, giant bear trap. <laughs> <laughs> I just thought it was funny. Like, but like, yeah, I think, I think doing it across, across like uh, being a comedian and also being full aware that like there's a slow gherkin album called yeah. that and that you like slow gherkin. Yeah. Like that's a great callback. And I, I think it just like opens up the conversation of like, wait, do you, you know, there's a ska band and then you go, yeah, I know. Good. Okay. That's the point. Yeah. I'm not going to yeah. name it like tragic kingdom or something, you know? Right. Right. I'm going with like, I think that like grow up is one of my favorite, uh, queers albums that might be the new one. Um, but it's the queers grow up. So it might be Turner Sparks grows up with a question mark. I don't really know. It'd be hilarious if you called, if you called your new album sublime self-titled <laughs> <laughs> the blue album. Joyce Manor, like their new record is called uh, 40 Ounces to Fresno. So that's. Oh, wow. That's a genius album title. Yeah. Well, there's a band called Hot Water Music, which is a Bukowski book. Right. So it you can cross over. Okay. So it's a slow gherkin double happiness. Was this a was this a, a favorite album? Here's the here's the rub. Here's the issue. <laughs> <laughs> I do like slow gherkin, but I don't I I don't, I, I, I'm sure I listened, I for sure listened to the album growing up, but not, it wasn't like top album ever, but it was just, I mean, I should just say yes. Can we take that again? And I just say, yes. <laughs> <laughs> I do. I like the band and I, but I'm like, I want it fit. It was one of those that I realized it fit. And then I'm like, it's also named after that thing, but I like that band, but I wouldn't, it's yeah. I don't know. Is that a good answer? That's a bad answer. That's <laughs> no, I think that's fine. I, I think I appreciate Gherkin more now than I did back in the day. I got to get back into them is my, what I'm trying to say. I mean, they just put out our, our intro music and outro music is both uh, from their, their most recent recording. 
And uh, they're both solid songs, like really, really, probably the best stuff they've ever done. Oh, good. Well, then I do like them because I love the what you guys play. Maybe, yeah, I... You know what? That might actually be it. Aaron, remember I asked you, I don't know, six months or a year ago, like, hey, what are those songs yeah. on your intro and outro? And you sent me those, and that's probably why it clicked back into my head. So good. Yeah, so basically, I'm in, I'm the reason why this album is called Double Happiness. Boom. All right, there we go. It's- <laughs> all, ska, all ska circles back to Aaron. <laughs> yes. You should check out um, Gherkin's second album, Shed Some Skin, if you... I don't know if you listened to that back in the day, but that's a... Uh, that's, I think, their best album. Now, that might be the name of my... That would be over the top if I just did it again. Shed some skin. <laughs> I, I only name my records after Slow Gherkin albums. Or we should go with Maybe I'll Catch Fire. Yeah, that'd be good. Let's do that one. <laughs> Can I ask you a question, Aaron? Yeah, yeah. Are you responsible for uh, the, the narrative that Ska's back? Uh, I don't know that I'm responsible for that. I think I, there's like a... Mm, there's a couple factors happening at the same time. One of them is that there was like uh, uh, new bands that were gaining interest. And that was happening around the same time as my book was happening. And then I think there was more like journalists taking an interest in what what was happening. And my book sort of became part of that. Your book killed it. I'd say that the biggest part of it is that there are a bunch of like new bands or not new, but like bands that are not the old legacy bands that are doing yes. well. And then Aaron wrote a book that talks about the nineties period and talks about, you know, the two tone period and everything that came before, but also knows what's happening now. Like if yes. Aaron had written it from the perspective of that was the nineties and that's it. And now we're all done. I think it would be different, but I, I definitely think the book, you know, is definitely a puzzle piece in there. Yeah. And it's, it's weird. Cause my book became a component for a lot of these articles about Scott being back and it's funny because my book is never a ban about ska is back, but I was like, always, like I was an interviewee for many of those articles. Yes. So I, I became like some unintended voice for that. And I have like a very, I, my, my own feelings about it are way too complicated to try to explain like, you know, in these narratives. Yeah. So it's great. I saw the interrupters a couple weeks ago in New York and it, as you're saying, it was the first non-legacy band, I guess if that's the term, that I'd ska band or ska punk, whatever that I'd seen in a long time. And it was so good. It was so like refreshing. Like and the other as you said, they're not new. They've been around for probably 10 years, right? Yeah, I think so. But it took that because the genre was not it's like so far away from the like, I guess the average person. It took that long to kind of um, I mean, they've been doing well for a while. They were on Jimmy Kimmel. I mean, I know we're recording this in advance. We were on Jimmy Kimmel last night as we record this. But yeah, uh, imagine seeing Rancid 10 years after they came out and being like, this is a new band, you know? Right. <laughs> it's it's just a different time now, I guess. Is what I'm yeah. saying. But th- they were so awesome. They were great. I saw you perform comedy in Sacramento at the Punchline. What was that like? I don't even, I don't think it was a year ago, but it was something around that. It was last winter, tw- winter 2021. Winter 2021. Yeah. That you, you told me, we, we hung out and had coffee before, and you told me that, um, you know, the comedy scene in New York has gotten to this point where there's like a lot of political comedians that are like on the left, and there's a lot of political comedians on the right, and there's not a ton of people who are just comedians. Just like, hey, I'm here to 
jokes. Yeah. Could you speak on that? Because I find that really fascinating. Sure. Yeah. I, uh, I, I, I guess I'm a little old school, but I prefer my comedians to be funny. (laughs) (laughs) And now it's like, everybody has like, uh, has some big time message on, uh, whether it's you need to, like telling you how to either it's how to vote or like to take a vaccine or not take a vaccine. And like it's it's serious. It's like the ser- comedy has become this serious business. And I think it also might just and there's all there's like there's literal like a proud boy branch of comedy in New York City. There's comedians in New York City who were s- storming the Capitol on January 6th. <laughs> it's madness. Oh uh, my god, that is so bizarre. And it's I, it's so bizarre. It's because what happened was it's it's hard. Like as as playing in a band, it's hard to make a living as a comedian. It's hard to make a living as a musician. And I think somewhere along the way, and when Trump kind of came in, everybody found this shortcut, which is like, wait a second, if I'm not very good at comedy, but if I just say that the left is crazy and cancel culture is blah, the worst. And uh, we, we got to storm the Capitol. Then I'll, I can get a podcast base together, yeah. you know, <laughs> and it worked. These people, I mean, they're never going to be on TV, but they don't care. They have like a hundred thousand people listen to their podcasts because they're reaffirming the fact. And especially like there's this uh, female comic, I won't name her. So I don't want to give her any publicity, but that's like a real good angle because it's mostly white guys, right? But if you can be the fe- the, the female comic who's like, you white guy, you guys are crazy, but I agree too. And then like the listeners, the Proud Boy listeners can be like, see, it's not just dudes. Like women, <laughs> they yeah. think it's fine. She said she laughed, you know? Um, so that's like a whole world. And then there is another world, which is like you're in a bookstore in Brooklyn and you're railing against the, the, the patriarchy and the, the worst thing on earth is the men or whatever, whatever it might be. And then that's a whole community too. And I don't find either side, like there's not a lot of jokes on either side. <laughs> it's a, it's a lot of statements and people clapping and yeah, it's like a rally, you know? And, yeah. uh, but I, I say that I, I do think that, just like online and Twitter and everything, those are kind of the loud minorities on each side. Like, like the majority of people are doing comedy and telling jokes and really just, uh, I guess the hardest thing to do in art is find yourself. Find out why you're on stage. What's the point? What are you trying to tell people? Why, why am I telling jokes? And it can't be because I want to be funny. It's because like, what's the message? So for me, it goes, it really goes back to growing up in the scone punk scene. And it's a message of uh, the like, unity. There's this whole divided world out there. If I can get serious for a second. And, but there's so much we have in common. So my first record that I put out in 2019, I just got back to America and it was the commonalities. It was an hour about the commonalities I saw in Americans. Hey, that we all do. Americans do this. No one was saying Americans are like this. People were saying, uh, Republicans are like this and Democrats are like this or like black people are like this and white people are like this. But I was looking at it from this outsider perspective. So I was saying Americans do this. These are the things we all are like and trying to unify people through the comedy. And, um, and then the second one is about my marriage, which is an interracial, intercultural marriage. And I talk about my wife for a half hour before even mentioning she's Chinese 
because no one's for sure no one's picturing that in their mind that uh, my wife is going to be a Chinese person. So it's a surprise. And what it's telling you underneath is that, oh, wow, like that's a typical relationship, even if I that is from t- people from two different countries, especially countries that are currently at odds with each other. But I didn't even realize they were from that because it was so it was so normal, like the things they were going through were so normal. And so now I'm trying to do it with that, uh, with different cultures. And, and, um, but anyway, that's the hard, I think that's the hard, the hardest thing to do for any artist is to find what you're trying to say. And so it's easier just to be like, we'll all just say that the, that we need to storm the Capitol. And then, (laughs) and then if a hundred thousand people are like, I will subscribe to that podcast. Like you don't care. These people don't care who they are. They're like, listen, you know, like Magic Spoon is paying for ad ad hits. So I don't, you know what I mean? I'm getting $1,000 per ad, I read. So uh, I think people are trying to find a shortcut. But, yeah. And that might be what it is. I don't know if you guys see this in music, if there's any similarity there. I know that, well, I mean, just to say like, um, as a person that appreciates comedy, like I think, go back to Keith. Mm-hmm. Keith's a person, he's been doing it for a really long time. He has a strong point of view that is very politically left. Yeah. Uh, and, uh, but he, he always puts comedy first and yes, he makes sometimes points of view that might make people uncomfortable, but he does it in a way he's not trying to alienate people. He's trying to deliver his message in a way that's funny. And there's a, a lot of craft that goes into that and it comes to yes. doing it for like years and years and years and years. And Keith and I tour together a ton. Anytime I'm in the area in California, he and I work together because of that exact reason. Because he puts, because he's putting, yeah, he puts the comedy first. And he has, uh, it takes a lot of charm, which he has to be able to go up to say, to do what he does in front of people who might disagree with him, but then they ultimately like him because the jokes are so good. Mm -hmm. So that's, that's, that's the good side of that. So on one hand, comedy can be this thing where you can almost like, open people up to a message by being funny. That's like the skill of it. The, um, the part that you're talking about is like, well, let's just, let's just say the thing that certain people want to hear and let's just jump to that. And then we'll just get those people and we'll piss off the other people. Yeah. Yeah. It's a, it's that idea of, uh, I mean, it's kind of true. Like nowadays you don't have to play it. You never, I guess you never really did have to play to everybody, but you for sure don't have to now because the, the radio doesn't matter. I mean, the music too, like the radio doesn't matter. And um, it's, so you kind of, you get a small audience. You want to, I forget the term, but you know what I mean? Like if you get a hyper-focused small audience, that's good. And, but an easy way to do that is just to latch on to whatever the current trend thing is. Yeah. And go for it. So I guess I see that uh, and whatever, good for them. But um <laughs> You know, God bless him. I got into comedy <laughs> to tell jokes. My heroes are like Norm MacDonald is my hero for uh, for comedy because he always, it's always about the joke. It's always like landing. The joke is for sure. And you never even know. I've I've followed him for 25 years and never knew what his political leanings were because it didn't, it, was, it wasn't part of what he was doing. Now, I agree with you what you're saying about Keith. Like people can do it successfully and John Stewart for sure did it successfully. Uh, but just like the Deftones, <laughs> <laughs> there's the, yeah, the, there's the callback when John, there's a lot of people who 
either want to be the next John Stewart or like even worse, want to be the next Tucker Carlson. Mm. So another, another comedian that you're friends with is uh, Ian Fidance, right? Yeah. He's been a guest on the show. He's a uh, adamant ska lover. Yes. He's great. When did you meet him? Uh, you know, I met him years ago, but not didn't really get to know him until not long ago. I would say middle of the pandemic. We were doing like outdoor shows in the parks and rooftops and all that stuff together. And he was talking to somebody. I think it was like he was going to see H2O or something like that. And it was like, you never hear, I never hear people mention bands like that. Just the average person at a, in the back room at a comedy club, you know? And, <laughs> and I was just like, my ears perked up. I'm like, wait, you like H2O? And then he's like, yeah. And then we started talking and then he was started talking to me and then we somehow just got to Scott pretty quickly. And then we realized we kind of grew up similarly on separate coasts, listening to all the same stuff. And, uh, that's kind of like our, whenever I see him, which is bouncing around the clubs every once in a while, once a month or something, we're on the same show. Uh, yeah, he's great. He's hilarious too. Oh yeah. I want to ask you a little bit about your podcast, Lost in America. Mm-hmm. So as I understand it, you interview comedians from uh, all over the world. Yes. And it kind of gives you a glimpse into the social political dynamics of these countries, right? Yeah, that's it. Exactly. Um, I kind of felt like, I guess, piggybacking on what we were just talking about, there was enough people talking about politics in America, you know, um, but no one, no one is kind of learning, at least here. It doesn't feel like there's enough people that are giving us outlets to learn about the rest of the world. And uh, through touring comedy, I've toured a bunch, I don't know, 20 countries or something like that, met, met comedians from around the world. There's comedy scenes everywhere. And so what we decided to do was pick every week, pick a topic of some, some news topic that's going on somewhere else in the world. Like, so there's the Ukraine war, obviously, but for example, they just had a coup in Sri Lanka, like last week as of, as of recording time. And so the question is like, why the hell they have a, a coup in Sri Lanka? So we find a comedian who's from Sri Lanka, get him on the podcast. He explains the whole story to us. So you're getting your global news from a comedian who lives in the country and is from the country. Mm, yeah. And when it's comedians talking to comedians, it's also, it, it's told, it's going to be told in an entertaining way because it's like, cause, it, and they're also pretty honest. I feel like it's just, it's like unfiltered. Like, all right, well, this guy sucks. That guy, this comp, this family's been in power for 50 years, whatever it might be. And uh, so we've been doing that for a couple of years and we actually just decided to turn it into a TV show that we're, we financed ourselves and we're going to be shopping um, probably as this is out right now. But we just went to El Salvador to do an episode in person. So El Salvador just they a year ago made Bitcoin their currency, uh, like their legal tender in the country is Bitcoin. Wow. So my co-host and I flew to El Salvador and met with three different comedians and their families and went on these little adventures with each comedian and then met with a couple different government officials and this Bitcoin millionaire guy who lives there, all basically trying to understand what's it like to live in a country where Bitcoin is your currency? How does it even work? If you're a small business owner, went to this restaurant, hung out with them, like how do you accept currency? How do you accept money in a currency that's fluctuating all the time? You know? Um, and, 
And then at the end, did a stand-up comedy show with those comics uh, at their local club that we filmed. And we were all doing material about the adventures we went on earlier in the week, which again would be the same thing in the sense of just trying to show uh, it's another unity thing that, hey, look, we're all we're all comics. We all no matter where you go in the world, we all have this thing in common. And here you're getting a glimpse into the lives of these average families in this country while learning about a topic. I think that's interesting because I find that it's hard to get information about what's happening around the world here. For, that's not through a lens of, you know, American talking heads, whether it be agreed somebody who's on Fox News or somebody who's on the left side. And it feels like our political, you know, two party system seems to filter the, the what's happening in other countries. And it and I, and I and I know in my heart that it's way more complicated than that. But, it, you know, it doesn't it's not presented to me like it's complicated. Agreed. Yeah. And it was so much when we started it, we were just, even if it was a big story, you'd kind of get a headline and then it would immediately be blown off the headline because Trump got two scoops of ice cream instead of one at the white house. And that was like, (laughs) Oh my God. Or like Biden the other day was trying to say he had COVID and accidentally said cancer and then, oh my God, that's breaking news. You know, meanwhile, there's a war going on in some other country. Yeah. And, but we don't care anymore because like Biden's sunglasses are crazy. Yeah. And so we just try, exactly. We want to bypass that whole thing. And as you said, the lens. So even the Ukraine war, we're learning about it through either the left or the a lens of American politics. Yeah. Where there's real people being affected and there's real things going on. And, Bitcoin was was totally the same. We found out that anything we had read, 60 Minutes went down to El Salvador and did a Bitcoin story three months ago. And I thought 60 Minutes would do pretty good journalism. It turns out like, no, it was a mat. Like I watched their thing. They just interview the Americans who were living there, first of all, or the government, like the American expats who were all invested in Bitcoin. And these people are like, it's great. Everybody here uses Bitcoin. It's this utopia that we're all in living and it's the future and things are happening. And the government's saying the same thing because they're investing in Bitcoin. We went down there without an agenda. We really just wanted to learn. We got down there throughout the, we tried like 10 different places. No one even accepted Bitcoin. (laughs) Wow. All these local businesses were like, yeah, are you nuts? Like, no, we're not. I was like, how do you accept Bitcoin where it's when it's fluctuating so much? How do you run a business off that? They're like, we don't. We just don't take it. Like, yeah, the law says we have to, but screw that. I'm not it would it would put me out of business. <laughs> and I was like, okay, yeah, that's what I thought. But then I saw 60 minutes and they said you take it. They're like, no, they're wrong. They're just interviewing Americans who are Bitcoin millionaires who are trying to get everyone to buy Bitcoin. <laughs> so and so we would, and but then when we also met the Bitcoin millionaire when we, were in the, when we were there, and he he was like feeding us this information that was just not on par with the reality we were living, you know. And uh, but I think he was just so used to being able to tell people stuff, and they're in America, and they're not really looking into it, you know. And they don't know enough about Bitcoin to really challenge him, you know, that kind of stuff. Yeah, and they're not going to come down there and spend a week going to shops and restaurants and trying to use it over and over again. And and uh, even there's this town called Bitcoin Beach, which is 
known as this the only currency they use there they accept there is bitcoin so the country's also on us dollars but in certain like in bitcoin beach they say they only take you better get your bitcoin ready they only take bitcoin we went there no one would take our bitcoin <laughs> one lady saw us walking down the street and we had cameras and when she saw us coming up to her she ran away because she knew we were going to be asking about Bitcoin. She didn't want to be on camera not accepting it. So she just closed her shop real quick as we're coming. It was wild. That is such a trip. Yeah. Anyway, Lost in America is the show. <laughs> we're still doing the podcast. We're trying to do both. Yeah, I love I love that. That's great. Thanks, man. So you still have all your Bitcoin. <laughs> I st- No. Oh, here's the craziest part. We couldn't even take it out. So they're like, yeah, there's these AT- these Bitcoin ATMs and you go to them and uh, you once you get to the, into the country, we'll just take you to the ATM. You can trans, trans you can transfer your money into Bitcoin, get our little wallet, like our app, and then you can use Bitcoin around town. And the ATM didn't work because we didn't have like a local ID card. Mm. So you have to be a local to use it, which means all these Americans on 60 Minutes saying like, this is great. We use, they're all lying. Like, Unless they had some other system that we couldn't figure out, but we we tried for the whole week and couldn't get Bitcoin out. So it's going to make for a good show, but it was a failed experiment. Circling back to ska, shall we? <laughs> Please do. We talked about logistics a little bit, but can you uh, can you give oh, yeah. us a little bit more of a tactile explanation? Describe the I'm name. Am I saying it right? Logistics. 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 Yeah. Describe a logistics show. Amazing. They were great. I, I heard uh, uh, Steve on this show, and I got to say, he really undersold them. He was like, yeah, yeah, that was my band I used to be in. But, you know, it was, I was like, what are you talking about? The band was awesome. Um, they had this album called Two for the Road, uh, which was their first one. It's so good. I don't know. Am I crazy? Are you, I don't know if you guys, what you guys think. They were great live. Um, yeah. Have you got, have you listened to that album recently? No. <laughs> <laughs> it was tough. Yeah. They were great. They were great lives. It's a tough, <laughs> tough. It's a tough listen. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Okay. Maybe. Yeah. Then I, okay. I haven't heard it recently, but re- they were really good live. They were, I mean, it was really fast. Um, like you didn't necessarily know what was going on. Right. Yeah. Meaning it was just a ton of sound coming at you. But Mikey, the bass player, Mikey Adelano, I remember him, was just like shredding, like shredding yeah. on bass. And uh, Jimmer, the singer, was uh, just really, like it was the fastest. It was super fast. It was just a lot of fun. It was like a giant party every time they played. That's kind of what I remember. They would dress up a lot. Like mm-hmm. sometimes they would all have masks on. Yeah. And costumes and stuff. And it was just kind of nuts. That's my main memory of them. Am I, am I hitting that on the, in the head? Oh, for, definitely. And also, I mean, they also, sound-wise, they were grabbing some of like the best parts of like what was happening with, I guess, quote-unquote, new metal. Like some of like the more dissonant, like weird single-note guitar things. Yeah, they would layer that in and then have like hardcore parts and they'd play like thrash metal all mixed in with ska. Yeah. It was all really good. But the, the main problem with that, that record is it's just, it's not, I mean, a lot of stuff from that era is just not recorded well. And then, um, lyrically 
those albums are, are a little like, Oh, like, Oh, are they? There's some stuff that's like a little bit like, Oh gosh. Like, ah. but I mean, whatever. It's, it's of a time period. I'm not trying to crap on it too much. I mean, I think the stuff they, they had on the split seven inch with us, I haven't listened to that in a few years, so I can't say for sure, but I feel like that was the best stuff they put out. I mean, the only good news about the, what I would imagine with the lyrics back then is he was speaking so fast, right? It was probably hard to decipher, but I remember there was like a, (laughs) there was like a, uh, they had a bunch of clips from movies. You remember that? Mm Mm-hmm. Like every song would begin and end with the move, like a oh, I bet I know what you're talking about now because it was a lot of dolomite, wasn't it? I think so. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, but no, I just remember it being fun. I don't remember really the. I know I get what you're talking about now with the lyrics. I could see that being a thing, but I I was never so deep into the lyrics. Oh, I was a member of uh, anti-racist action. Do you remember that? Yeah, is that still a thing? I haven't heard of it being a thing in a, in a while. The last interaction I had that with them was like, we did this link 80 tour that was only in Texas. Okay. And it was like the worst tour we ever did. And it was supposed to be sponsored by ARA. Yeah. And so we were expecting they were going to have like, you know, tables at all the shows and literature and none of that materialized. The tour was like horribly routed. It was like venues were getting changed every two seconds. And that was the last, um, the last interaction I had with any sort of uh, ARA group that checks out with uh, my, my experience. So my story was, I think it was maybe my senior year of high school. I was 17, but I was still, I, I looked like I was 10. I was, I'm a young looking guy anyway, but I was, I remember I was still getting into Sierra Tahoe to go skiing for the 12 and under price, which was $5. I was a senior in high school. And I was going, I was at some concert at um, the Crest Theater and they had their booth, the anti-racist action booth. And I went up and started talking to them and uh, I was like, yeah, how do I get involved? And they were like, oh, just sign your name and your phone number here and we'll get in touch, whatever, maybe email. And so I did that. And then they called me or emailed me two weeks later. And the guy was like, hey, so thanks for signing up. We're based, this chapter is based in the Bay Area, but we're actually looking for someone in Sacramento. Do you want to be, you could be the head of it. (laughs) And and I was like, I was like, what? Okay. What? (laughs) And they were like, yeah, give us your address. We'll mail you t-shirts, which I, as far as I knew, I I don't know what else being the head of it meant, except they were mailing me t-shirts. And so then all these t-shirts showed up with like Hitler blowing his head off and stuff. And my parents were like, what's going on here? And I'm like, I don't know. I'm like, I guess I'm in this group now. Um, And so they're like, yeah, just take the t-shirts to the shows. You pick the shows and sell t-shirts. It was very disorganized. And then they're like, we're having a chapter meeting. If you want to come to the chapter meeting. So I was like, yeah, sure. So I go and it was in, I don't know, it was like Merced or Manteca or like, I don't know, wherever the water slides were. I think it was there. Yeah, Manteca. And uh, it was in like a, maybe a, um, a public library and there were seven people and me and they were sitting around and it, was, it, did, it wasn't like the toughest looking bunch, you know, but they were sitting around talking about, they had a list of all of the, where all of the uh, KKK rallies were going to be coming up and that we were all going to go there and fight them. 
And, uh, and I was like, okay, I, I, you know, this is good, but I I might be in over my head. I I didn't, I I just signed up on a list like a week ago and now I'm here. So, and then I got interviewed by the local, like, I want to say news and review or something in Sacramento, like the listings magazine. And the guy was like, you're the head of ARA. I want to come meet with you. I'm like, sure. (laughs) And then, and then this is all over the course of like a week. And then we meet at this coffee shop in Folsom. And he was like, he was like, I was like, hi, I'm Turner. He's like, what? You're Turner. I look 10. Remember (laughs) he's an adult. He's like, yeah. I was like, yeah. And he goes, you're the head of anti-racist action in Sacramento. I was like, I don't know, I guess. And he goes, all right, well, you know, you guys are known. He starts asking me questions. Like all of a sudden I'm the spokesman. He's like, you're known for some very violent acts. Uh, and it's in the name of anti-racism. So that's good. But it's, it's, it's a pro-violence organization. How do you square that with your morals or whatever? And I was like, I was like, we're known. What? We're known for violent acts. Like, I didn't know anything. You know, and, and then I think I called the guy and I was like, hey, man, I, I'm in. But like, I don't think I should be the head of this. Can I return the shirts? And I mailed the shirts back to him. And then I think that was roughly it. But uh, <laughs> it seemed it was so I'm sure the people you were dealing with in Texas were just people like me. Yeah. They were like they're like, now you're in charge. Like, what? <laughs> <laughs> it's very disorganized. Let's just go through the list of some other bands that we didn't discuss that you were a fan of from back in the day. Any, any, any come up? Yeah. I mean, I saw uh, Hepcat a number of times live. I saw Let's Go Bowling. Uh, these are, I was fans of all these bands. I saw the, um, the Pie Tasters open. I saw one show that I'm pretty sure, I think it was Swinging Utters and then Pie Tasters and then um, Mighty Mighty Boss Tones at the El Dorado Saloon, which is like a club. Wow. This is all maybe like 96. I remember they all saying it was their first California tour from what I remember. Or not not Swinging Utters. They were from California. And then a couple months later, or maybe a year later, whatever it was, Pie Tasters came back and had um, Bouncing Souls open for them. And at the same place, uh, and then I saw a ton of local bands. I saw filibuster a bunch. And, um, I just remember being surprised when I left Sacramento that everybody wasn't into local music in their scene. Like I remember going to college and being like to the other people, like, what are your favorite bands? And these are like 18 year old kids. And they're like, Oh, the Almond brothers, you know? And I'm like, what? <laughs> I thought they were going to name like some, a local, I'm like, I'm like, you're from Philly. What about like dead milkman? And they're like, I've never heard of dead milkman. I'm like, Who, what's going on? You know, I just assumed everybody in Philly loved the Dead Milkman. I didn't know that these bands were not all giant famous bands. That was kind of the world I was living in. Unlike Adam and Link 80, these bands were not rich. They weren't all, yeah, Link, yeah. (laughs) The the Dead Milkman don't live in mansions outside of Philadelphia, apparently. Maybe they do, but uh, Punk Rock Girl did well. (laughs) But yeah, the queers, giant into the queers, screeching weasel. I mean, that was like the kind of punk side. Um, and ska was uh, everybody. It was a lot of the New York stuff. That was a lot of my draw. I kind of always wanted to live in New York. All the Moon Records, the Toasters, um, something about the more traditional sound versus like Southern. I like Southern California ska, but I think I got into that first, and then went a little deeper and found like the two tone stuff. Which like the toasters kind of brought to New York, I guess, right? Yeah. Um, and 
I remember I was going to shows like once a week and kind of, and a lot of times by myself. I remember a lot of, it was just comfortable. I mean, I remember I, remember I was that kid. My parents would drop me off at Big Shots or Eldorado Saloon and then come pick me back up at like 11 or whenever it ended. And uh, it would, they, I remember just like the first time stinking like weed. And my parents were like, are you high? And I'm like, no, I wasn't high. I'm like, no, I'm not high. Just everyone around me is smoking weed the whole time. They're like, are you sure? I'm like, yeah. And then they're like, oh, okay. Go ahead and go back to that place. <laughs> yeah. And then it was just known that I was going to smell like weed every time I came out. But they didn't, you know, I guess they, I don't know. They didn't mind. Do you remember that feeling, Aaron, going to shows and like coming out discovered and the smell of like spilled beer and cigarettes and weed? <laughs> smell, the smell of cloves. <laughs> Yeah, <laughs> it was. Yeah, remember? I guess you could smoke inside then, because yeah, you smoke inside, um, which was crazy when I think about now. If I if I if people could smoke inside clubs now, that would definitely deter me from going to shows. Yeah, yeah, for and sure. there was always like, so there was there would be like two hundred fifty people smoking, and then maybe two people smoking cloves, and those cloves overrode every single cigarette. You're like, oh, yeah. My God. There's a guy smoking cloves on the other side of this club. It's, I will say the amount of all ages, looking back, I just took for granted that all these all ages shows existed. But then I read your book and with the, it's like Skanga Pickle kind of like pioneered that whole thing, right? It definitely helped. Yeah, they definitely helped. Yeah. Yeah. It's so cool because I, I could see a, a, as an adult, I could see a bar, bar owner being like, I don't want all these 15 year old kids coming to my bar, you know? But, mm. I guess they figured it was an it was an avenue to make they could make enough money to make it work. Yeah, I mean, I think if you own a venue and you want to have stuff happening, you know, four to five days a week, you have to diversify. So maybe you have bar bands that you're selling a lot of alcohol. Then maybe you have some nights where it's a bunch of kids and you're not selling, yeah. much, but you're selling good tickets. So I think that's it's probably about diversifying. They were all packed. These shows were all packed. Sacramento, we always would get the weekday because they'd go to the Bay Area for the weekend. <laughs> yeah. So it was always like a Wednesday or Thursday night. But I guess my parents didn't care. It was throughout high school. I mean, for like 14 to 18, I was doing it. Yeah. All the time. Uh, and then we were playing at dance. Did you guys play at like any like high school dances? Was it that anything like that for your bands? No, I never did. did I mean, you, I remember Flat Planet playing on the the um platform behind the theater yeah we played that was like a lunch show we did a lot of lunch a lot of a couple dance dance it was school school or schools would have battle of the bands like i said there'd be like 10 bands at every school it was it was just this yeah it was it was odd i mean like it was very normal at the time but then sure i guess yeah just not I'm sure there were other cities around America. For sure, obviously, there were that had this, but not Miami. <laughs> Thank you so much for listening to In Defense of Ska. If you've enjoyed this episode, please like and subscribe to the podcast wherever you normally stream or download episodes. If you haven't already, Grab a copy of my book, In Defense of Ska, available at clashbooks.com. You can follow us on Twitter, Instagram, Facebook, and TikTok. It's at In Defense of Ska. And please consider joining our Patreon at 
patreon.com backslash in defense of ska. You will get monthly bonus episodes, extended interviews and commentary per episode, and access to the in defense of ska discord. In defense of ska would not be possible without the great team that tirelessly works on it every week. So you should go check out their other projects as well. Co-host Adam Davis has an amazing band called Omnigon. Give them a follow on Instagram and Twitter. It's simply at Omnigon. And our editor, Chris Reeves, has a phenomenal record label and podcast called Ska Punk International. For more information, go to skapunkinternational.com. And if you've ever enjoyed one of the highly specific in defense of ska memes floating around the interwebs, it was likely the work of the bands I like only charge $18. Find them on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. And on that note, we leave you by saying, Ska now more than ever. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich, but you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Hey, everybody. It's Barry from the What Podcast. Hey, it's Russ. Hey, it's Brian. And we are giving away two tickets to Bonnaroo 2024. These are GA+, and they include camping. Russ, how do people get qualified? We want to hear your top artists to play on the Bonnaroo 2024 lineup. Call 423-667-7877 and tell us who we should check out. It's the What Podcast. Thanks.